Your website is the front door of your business, but the way teams build and optimize is broken. Stuck between inflexible templates and cumbersome codependent solutions, there's a better, faster way. Enter Webflow, a visual-first platform that empowers you to create freely. Now you can ship web pages in weeks instead of months and save millions in development costs. These are the real results for companies like Orange Theory, Dropbox, and IDEO. Get started today at webflow.com. Webflow, more than a website builder. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today, I have the great honor of sitting here with Lee Applebaum, who is the Global Chief Marketing Officer for Patron Tequila and Grey Goose Vodka. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nadine. It's a pleasure to join you. Finally, we've been talking about doing this for some time, and I'm delighted we could finally make it happen. Absolutely. Well, why don't we just start with a general grounding for us. This is a big role you have, and it grew uh, exponentially just a few months ago. So can you share with me a little bit about what you're doing now and why you took that on? Absolutely. For any marketer, I always say it's a great honor to be able to work on one iconic brand in your career. Uh, And I've been fortunate to have several, but Patron Tequila very much at the top of that list. And now to have the unique privilege to work on Patron Tequila and on Grey Goose Vodka is sort of a pinch me moment in my career. And then I use the word honor and privilege, um, not gratuitously, but very seriously. They're two iconic brands that have really shaped the ultra-premium spirit space. And so a real delight for me to work on them. For five years, I worked on the Patron Tequila brand leading Mm -hmm. those global efforts. And they were very rewarding. When I joined the brand, we had a 68% or so market share, which is rather impressive in its own right. Uh, When I remember when I went to grad school, I was told by a professor that at least at scale, brands theoretically could never maintain market share, (laughs) even above 40 or 50%. So when I arrived at Patron and I was advised that we had a 68 or so share, I thought, oh, just don't mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go back the other way. And uh, together with a a wonderful team of marketers, sales, and across the entire enterprise, we managed to build that market share above 70% in a growing tequila market. It's a booming category. Wow. And all of the upstream brand metrics, the sort of ethereal rubber meets the sky stuff that marketers (laughs) love, has been growing stronger and stronger. And I think more importantly, the sales and market share have been growing with that. Uh, A year or so ago, we made the strategic decision to sell our business to Bacardi, and it was a difficult decision to give up that control of Mm -hmm. the brand, but Bacardi was the right choice for us culturally as another privately held, family-owned business with an incredible quiver, if you will, of brands. When the sale was completed... You know, again, very fortunate that the board asked not only that I continue to lead Patron with with my team, but also to take on Grey Goose. And that was done really for a couple of reasons, but most notably because there are a lot of similarities between the two brands. 
Both brands really transform their respective space within Super Premium, Alcbev. Mm -hmm. Patron really created Super Premium tequila space. And Grey Goose revolutionized and arguably transformed the landscape for luxury brands in many ways in our space. Whereas Patron has continued its growth trajectory, Grey Goose has struggled. And most of that struggle is really the competitive environment. Mm -hmm. So many new entrants into the space, so much dilution in the space, and... You know, we've recognized an opportunity to port some of the learnings that we had from Patron over to Grey Goose. But culturally, very, very similar organizations. The brands uh, share a lot of the same ethos and, and background when you think about how John Paul de Joria created the ultra premium tequila category with Patron and the way in which Sidney Frank the legendary sort of spirits icon entrepreneur who created Jägermeister, then went on to create Grey Goose, that brand was created with that same sort of entrepreneurial spirit. So a very similar DNA in the brand, very similar positioning, but a real opportunity to revitalize and re-energize one brand in Grey Goose versus continued the success and growth that we've had at Patron. Awesome. Okay, so I could ask you a million questions about spirits, but I want to hear about the marketing that you did because I remember reading an article on you, must have been three years ago maybe, but you were doing some revolutionary things with Patron to really engage with your consumers through social media. Tell me what you were thinking at that point and your approach to that. Patron is really interesting. The brand was founded 30 years ago, and for most of its growth period rested on the swagger of the brand, the style of the brand. It is inextricably linked to key moments in pop culture. Almost all of these very, very organic, embraced by celebrity. Patron is found in the lyrics of rap and hip hop, country in movies and television and radio. And that had really been the underlying foundation of the brand. What we recognized really five or so years ago, and this isn't specific to Patron nor endemic to the category, it's really more about luxury and you could argue more broadly just consumer goods, is consumers still value and appreciate the swagger of a brand, the style. And in luxury, that's why we buy most of these brands. It's increasingly important that that style rests on a legitimate foundation of authenticity and that brands have transparency and integrity behind all of that swagger. And when we realized that there was an obligation and an opportunity to have this conversation with consumers, and I say an obligation because consumers are, as I said, increasingly demanding it, and an opportunity because we as a brand from day one, it has been part of our ethos to produce an artisanal handcrafted product that has all of those attributes of authenticity. We recognize that social and digital was the ecosystem to best do this. Most of that storytelling is very rich. Some of it can be quite technical. It's not something you can punch out in a 15-second or really even a 30-second spot that is well conveyed through static print advertising. I'm a fan of all of those. I'm very media agnostic, to be clear. But I think each serves a little different purpose. And social and digital is an important way for us to communicate the authenticity side of our business. And one of the vehicles that we used very, very early on was virtual reality. Mm. An interesting backstory to that, my head of, of digital, Adrian Parker, he and I had this vision for how do we tell this 
authenticity story for our brand in a way that is as transparent as possible. Our distillery is located in a relatively remote place in Mexico, and it's closed to the public. And we always say, if we could just get every consumer in the world down to our distillery, and they could see how we make tequila, how the 1,600 men and women actually handcraft this product, we'd have 100% market share, right? <laughs> it, would be, it would be unassailable the way in which we make it, but we can't do that. So the next best way for us to do it, outside of having journalists and third parties come visit us and write their sort of unadulterated view of the experience that they had, was to transport consumers and the trade, that might be a bartender or a mixologist, right, the influencers within the spirits community, to transport them to our hacienda virtually. And Oculus at the time was more a buzzword, really, than a technology that anybody had experienced. So we actually reached out to Oculus. This was a few months prior to the Facebook acquisition. And we described this project where we want to virtually transport consumers to the Hacienda and allow them to walk around it and see firsthand the way in which our artisanal craftsmen and women are creating this product. And the answer we got back is that's very ambitious <laughs> and someday we'll be able to do it. But today we can't. A few months later, the acquisition by Facebook was announced and we found some amazing partners in the agency world and in the dev world who said, we can actually build it. We're going to build it on the Oculus platform before even Oculus acknowledged that they could do it. And we did it. And we oh were one gosh. of the very, very first brands in the world to combine virtual reality, live action video with animation, all shot in 4K. And at the time, and again, at the time, it sounds so dated. I mean, we're talking three or four years ago. Watching consumers in the trade put the Oculus goggles on was a transformative experience. <laughs> and two things really happened. One, and, and the most important thing for us was, are they taking away the brand goal, which is a recognition that we are making this beautiful artisanal product? And the answer overwhelmingly was yes. But the second goal, and less important but still important, was that we're showcasing our commitment to innovation. Mm -hmm. right? We're not a technology company. So technology isn't really endemic to what we do. But there's a broader brand halo that when you are an innovative brand, in this case, leveraging a very cutting edge, innovative technology and platform, it says something about you as a brand mm -hmm. and even about the way in which we produce our tequila. We've always been a very disruptive brand, a very innovative brand. But you can only say that so many times in a way, right, that's specific right. to your business. So let's figure out another way to do it. And Oculus was a very important way to do that. When Apple announced the AR kit for the updated iOS last year, mm -hmm. we were one of the very first companies to jump on that platform with an augmented reality. But one of the things I, I always reinforce to my team is it's never technology for technology's sake. It's a means to an end. What is it as a brand that we are trying to accomplish? So in the case of virtual reality, it wasn't just showing that we could do really neat and cool and progressive things. It was about telling a story around authenticity, which was a brand imperative. 
because there was a gap with consumers. Mm -hmm. Consumers said, you've got the style, but do you have the substance? We had to close that gap. Technology was the tool for us to be able to do that. Social media is another really important vehicle for us. We are today the number one spirit globally on social media. When I arrived at the company five years ago, we had virtually no presence in social media. We had no Instagram account, no Twitter account, and really a very nascent uh, Facebook account. No engagement with consumer, no real thoughtfulness about the content. Fast forward a couple of years, and we have the number one spirit globally. Wow. And while I credit having a truly world-class marketing team as well as fabulous partners, the real credit is the consumer. Before we ever decided to engage consumers on social media, they were already having a conversation without us. There were literally millions of images of consumers with our bottle, sharing cocktails, pictures with friends, hashtag Patron or any sort of derivation thereof on Instagram, for example. Millions of images sitting out on Instagram, and we were not participating in the conversation. And so our job wasn't to ignite the conversation. It wasn't even to curate the conversation. It's to participate in the conversation. And so I think moving from zero to hero, really the credit goes to the consumer. They sort of said, you know, where have you been all this time, Patron? We've been talking uh, about you. In fact, one of the buzzwords that we use in our business, it's sort of our litmus test for whether something is on brand or not, is Patron worthy. The phrase Patron worthy actually comes from Consumers. What consumers were saying on social media, they were sharing these moments in their life. Sometimes they appeared rather trivial. It might have been a cocktail with a friend after a hard day of work. It could have been something more significant like a big job promotion or you just got engaged. And they would post these photos with hashtag Patronworthy. It was their way of saying this moment is so important to me that it merits sharing a moment with Patron. I always say that's the ultimate compliment for any brand, that consumers have made the choice to involve and enroll us in some of their most important memories and some of their most important life moments. And again, these can be small moments, they can be big moments. And the word Patron-worthy was born out of that. And that word, which was harvested from consumers in social media very organically, is the litmus test by which we internally judge is something on brand or not on brand. And in fact, it's taken a broader role within our corporate culture about whether something is just right or wrong. It's not only about a marketing decision, looking at a piece of creative and saying, is this Patron-worthy ad? Is this a Patron-worthy line of copy? It might be, is this individual we're looking to hire? Patron worthy? Is this decision that you're about to make? It could be a financial investment. It could be anything about the company. Is it Patron worthy? And people have asked me whether we've codified that. You know, is it laminated? Is it framed in everybody's <laughs> office? These are the 10 things that are and aren't Patron worthy. And here's the amazing thing it's not. It's a deep understanding of 
what it is to be patron worthy and what's not. It's like right and wrong. It's very <laughs> difficult to codify, but we've learned over time as an organization what is patron worthy, what is not, and more importantly, our consumers have defined the boundaries for us of what truly is patron worthy. I always say if if a consumer who let's say they get engaged, a really important moment in many people's lives, if they're willing to share our brand in that moment, that's a pretty lofty moment in their life. Then think about the obligation that we have day in and day out in the decisions we make in our brand. They need to be taken just as seriously. Okay, so, uh, Lee, I have like eight directions I want to go with you. Because I've like, taken you in 50. I have you know, No, but I love it all. I love it all. I'm eating this up because this is so exciting and interesting. I'm going to ask you the one question on the social, and then I'm going to take us a different direction. Now that you've got this incredibly engaged community, you've got the Patron-worthy moment. They have pretty much created this platform for you. The world talks a lot about user-generated content and what to do with all of the stories that consumers are telling these days. Like, Are you only engaging with them on the social platforms that they're in, or is there a plan or an idea of how to bring them into the Patron world a little bit more intentionally, like... Pixly is a good example of a new technology that allows you to incorporate from any social media feed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I mean, certainly the more traditional, ubiquitous platforms are where we spend most of our time. It's as a global brand, their platforms, obviously each of the platforms is stronger in different markets, Mm -hmm. but they're platforms that allow us to communicate with a large, wide audience. Mm -hmm. But as was the case with VR, innovation, even in social media, is very, very important. Mm -hmm. We have a a technology on the Twitter platform, actually a bot tender right now, (laughs) where, where a virtual bartender will actually engage with you as you systematically work through a cocktail choice. Because one of the interesting things in cocktails is, as consumers, we we don't know what we don't know. We know how to ask for, give me a margarita or give me a X, you know, a, a Bloody Maria or give me a some of the iconic cocktails. But that's not really the way the consumer thinks. We think in terms of flavors. And oftentimes, the cocktail isn't the lead. Sometimes it's the food pairing, as is the case with wine. So I'm eating Thai or Indian. It's not just Mexican food, mm-hmm. right? Um, it may be occasion-influenced. Is it brunch? Is it late night? It may even be influenced by weather. It's really hot outside. I want something cool and refreshing. So on Twitter, these bot tenders (laughs) will help you curate your drink decision, your cocktail decision, based on these different attributes that you plug in. Uh, But again, most of that happens on sort of the big three, big four Mm -hmm. platforms where we can get really, really good reach. It allows us to interact Mm one-on-one with individual consumers while simultaneously syndicating that across millions of consumers who might share the very same questions, the very same interests as that one individual with whom we're interacting. So I'm going to go check that out. Yeah, please. So cool. And it is, you should know that it sits on the Twitter platform, but it's powered by two amazing, super talented mixologists that are on my team, David Allen and Stephen Halpin, who have built their career making these beautiful artisanal cocktails behind the bar. And now they're not only behind the bar, they're also on the other side of the keyboard. Okay, so you literally had to start a team from zero. If there was no presence, there was no team. How did you approach that? Right, so we had not a single social media 
leader in the marketing organization and really, for all intents and purposes, didn't have an outside agency either. We had a few freelancers working on it. (laughs) Everything, it sounds so cliche, and I think the reason it sounds cliche is because it is unquestionably true. It's all about people. And it's not about the number of people. It's amazing when you get world-class talent, what one or two transformational leaders can do. And I'm so blessed to have brought on, even today, by the way, the massive digital enterprise at Patron is three people. Oh my gosh. Three people. Now, we have brilliant agency partners with whom we work that allow us to scale, but it's three. But there are three rock stars. Mm, Rock stars. Some generalists, some a little more focused, but rock stars who have a passion for the brand, passion for the consumer. And it's funny, you know, when we talk about expertise in social media, depending on the platform you're talking about, it may be one or two years of expertise. I mean, that makes you, you have a PhD in some of these platforms after a year. So it's not like they've been doing this their entire lives, but there is good or better than the very best talent. But it's a tiny team. It was built from zero. I love the fact that we've kept the team very small. And if you think about virtual reality, augmented reality that's coming down the pike, I like having a small team because some of these technologies require very, very specific talents. And rather than going out and hiring a team and building that team, only then to move on to another platform for which your prior team may not be technically capable, we go out to the world and say, who are the very best people doing it today? And we find a way to partner with them. Those are the partners who built our VR platform, built our AR platform, and with whom we'll continue to find the very best talent in the world, but really keeping our internal team very, very small. Their job is more to shepherd the agency talent and the external talent than it is to have it inside the organization. Is this the same team now that's taken on Grey Goose too? Yeah, so there is a separate marketing organization at Grey Goose, but my head of digital, Adrian Parker, who joined me on the journey at Patron five years ago, is now venturing with me (laughs) to lead the digital transformation at Grey Goose too. So we're going to port those same learnings, take that intellectual capital that he brings over to Grey Goose. Okay, I'm excited to see what you guys do. I am too. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, so I'm only going to ask you two more quick questions. If you had a piece of career advice for somebody who is in marketing, who at some point would like to become a CMO, what's like one or two things that you really went, this is radically changing my thinking, or this is going to put me in the perfect spot to be able to lead a team of marketers? I... I'm not sure how I sort of stumbled upon this philosophy, and I did stumble upon it, but it's worked out pretty well. People will look at my CV and the range of packaged goods, again, now in the spirits world, I've been in the retail world, wildly different brands. I didn't grow up in spirits. I didn't stay in a single vertical, and people will ask me about that. And what I realized at a point in my career was it's not about the vertical, the industry you're working in. For me, it's always been about finding a product or a category that the consumer is passionate about. And when the consumer is passionate about it, you too will be very passionate and you can do exceptional work. I worked for several years at David's Bridal. You may not know that about me. I actually did not. Yeah, which was acquired by acquired by federated department stores. Okay. Um, 
And I remember when I got the call about the opportunity from Retain Search to work at David's Bridal. And I said, well, first of all, I'm a guy. <laughs> and secondly, I'm already married. So, no, I'm not interested. And I went to bed. And then I thought about it. And I thought, where do you find a more passionate consumer than the bride? Now, Your passionate can be used in a lot of right, ways in yeah, that situation, right? right, right? right. There's a whole <laughs> bridezilla movement around that. But, but where do you find a more passionate? And I thought, and a more important occasion, you know, we talk about in retail, they talk about service recovery. Mm-hmm. There is no service recovery in bridal. Yeah. I mean, there are do-overs, I guess, in, <laughs> in the world of marriage, but, but there aren't really in, in that way. And I had an amazing several years working in that business in a product category that means nothing to me, but with a really passionate consumer. At Patron, same thing, a very, very passionate consumer. And so I think as marketers contemplate their path to CMO. I think a couple of things. One, diversity is critical. I really believe that the days of either being a CPG marketer or a retail marketer are over. You've got to have diversity, and I really like operating on both sides. And then I think a wide range of verticals within that. And I think the guiding principle shouldn't really even be, is this a big blue chip brand? Is this something that's going to look great on my CV? I remember many times people ask me, David's Bridal. Like <laughs> I started at Coca-Cola, right? Big blue chip brand. Why David's Bridal? I mean, yes, it's, it was the undisputed share leader. So it was the biggest player in the space. But it's because it was a passionate consumer. And therefore, I too, as a marketer, was really passionate, my team, about what we did. And I think that sort of philosophy about not not worrying about the sort of optics of, well, I'm an automotive person, I'm a luxury goods person, I'm an FMCG person, right? Not structuring your entire career around brands just based on their blue chip value, but rather thinking about the consumer just as, it's kind of ironic, right? As marketers, we Mm -hmm. say we should be consumer-centric. I would say... As marketers, as it relates to our career trajectory, we should be consumer-centric too. Let's think about where the consumer loves the products and goods, and let's invest our time there too. Absolutely. That's really, really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. And then my last question, sounds like you've already found your passion in life, but if you weren't doing what you're doing right now, and money and talent or no object, you could do anything in the world, what would you do? This is an interesting answer. This summer, I climbed Kilimanjaro. I saw your pictures. They were so cool. Thank you. And the important thing to note is I have a terrible fear of heights. Terrible. Terrible, terrible. And I now have been bitten by the mountaineering bug. So, answer to your question would be, I would love to climb the seven summits of the world. Wow. That's what I would do. And I would love to guide people as they conquer those seven summits. Unfortunately, the realities are I also don't have a death wish. I have a a 13-year-old and a wife, both of whom I love. And so summits like Everest are not in the cards. But I found it was very climbing Kilimanjaro. For me, I'm very physically active. So it wasn't actually much of a physical challenge. I sort of had this really important moment on the summit, conquering my fear of heights at parts of the the climb. I think this idea of uh, as we ascended a five and a half hour 
our journey, a lot of self-reflection, working together as a team. There were less strong climbers helping them, strangers, so I didn't know, helping them to the summit, all things that resonate with me as a marketing leader, helping others be successful, helping them achieve their goals, um, doing things which are a little scary and unpredictable, all really resonated with me. So if I could, I'd sort of be a Sherpa uh, or a a mountain guide. I'm I'm next January actually going to climb Anconcagua in Argentina, uh, which is close to 23,000 feet. So that'll be the next step in the Seven Summit journey. But I'll also keep my feet firmly planted at sea level as well with great goose and with Patron in the meantime. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if it'll help to have some Grey Goose and Patron when you're going up the mountain or not, but you just stay on the mountain, but keep warm. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Well, Lee, it's been a real pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Next time, we'll talk about more and more, and I want to hear more about your Grey Goose story as it evolves. Deal. Thank you.